How's everybody doing? Wasn't that awesome? Give the Lord a hand clap, a hand praise. Amen. Brother Bob told all the ministers in the back, the seven of us that are going to be speaking, he said, be yourself. I don't know how I can be myself and do it in seven minutes. <laughs> but I'm going to give you a toned down version of myself. First of all, I want to thank God for just the privilege of being here, being invited to be here. Amen. I think this is year number three for me. I consider it no small honor to be before God's people. And I'm so encouraged by the variety of people that are here of all ages, grandparents, parents, children. Amen. You took time out of your busy schedule to come and pay honor and, and express your, your thanksgiving to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because without him, we wouldn't have a reason to be here. Is that right? I want to share from the words that were given to me, the seven last words of Jesus Christ. It's found in St. Luke 23. And I'm going to also read the verse that precedes that. When they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals on the right hand and on the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Can I say that again? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Amen. When I first read that scripture many, many years ago, I had imagined in my mind that Jesus, while he was hanging on the cross, looked up into heaven and saw his father stewing over what was going on down on earth involving his son. And I'd imagined in my mind that the father was reaching into his duffel bag, getting out a couple hundred lightning bolts, lightning bolts and was going to hurl them down there against everybody who took part, amen, Jew and Gentile, into the crucifixion of his son. And then one day it dawned on me that he was not saying that to ward off the father's anger or the father's wrath, amen. But he spoke it out aloud, knowing that those words would be preserved over the centuries for you and I, because it was always in the Father's heart to redeem us. The very purpose of Jesus going to the cross was an expression of, of the Father's will, desire to forgive us, amen, so that we could be reconciled back to him. And so he said that, glory be to God. And not only that, let me also say this. It would have been hypocritical of Jesus Christ to ask his Father to forgive the offenders of their offenses, and he was not willing to do that. So you think about this awesome forgiveness that Jesus exhibited and exercised by an act of his will on the cross. You can't make me believe that he was feeling it. You can't make me believe that he was smiling and say, oh, no big deal. I'm, I'm just so happy to be here, saints. No, he was traumatized. The nails in his hands, the humiliation, the beating all night long. Amen. The rejection, the betrayal, all of those things he went through. And he's, and he's hanging on the cross. And instead of, amen, speaking words of curses to the people, which he could have done, he demonstrates this awesome love for even his enemies by saying, Father, forgive them. They're just being ignorant. They don't know what they're really doing. But I know what I'm doing. And he said that, amen, he said those words. In other words, he can say to us, even what I've gone through, this can be forgiven. Amen. Now, what does that have to do with us today? I'm so glad you asked. Because just as Jesus suffered with that trauma, and he didn't wait for nobody to say, I'm sorry. He didn't wait for people to repent. But he, as an act of his will, because he loved them, said, Father, forgive them because I forgive them. And I'm saying that sometime or somewhere in your lifetime, you are going to be offended. 
You are going to be hurt. You are going to be traumatized. But who are you that you can't forgive? Amen. Someone said, well, I had a two-timing husband. I had a philandering wife. I had a business partner that ripped me off, amen, took millions from me, ruined me. I had a child that disappointed me. I had a, uh, there was a man of God who I trusted and he betrayed my trust, amen, turned out to be a no good skunk. But God says, even this you can forgive because as he is, so are you. Come on, say amen. Someone say with me, as he is, so am I. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. So if you tell me, and I'm not fussing at you, I'm just one of those hollering black preachers. <laughs> you see, you know, the kingdom of God is like Ben and Jerry's ice cream. It comes in all flavors, and some of those brands have a couple nuts in them. So I'm just a nut. <laughs> so I'm saying, look at in your past, if, if you can go through the Rolodex of your life, if there's anybody in your past, a father, a mother, a friend, an enemy, somebody that you, that you have not forgiven, understand this, that the Spirit of Christ lives on the inside of you. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So if you tell me, you know, you don't know, Reverend Hansen, what I've been through, you don't know the pain, you don't know the trauma, I say, look at Jesus. Jesus set the example for us. When it didn't feel good, he forgave. When the people weren't worthy of forgiveness, he forgave. Forgiveness is not, I'm going to wait till you come to me and apologize to me. I'm going to wait for you to come and say and ask for your forgiveness. No, you forgive because it's the right thing to do, because it's the Christ thing to do. God bless you. Did you learn anything in these seven minutes? Let the church say amen. Yeah, okay. Hey, um, David, thank you. I got to tell you, I remember two years ago I had the opportunity to be here, and David said, you know, Pastor, it's okay to smile. Uh, I'm not a smiley kind of pastor, quite honestly, although I have joy that's unshakable through Christ. And, uh, but David... I, I always enjoy his preaching. So, listen, so I have the opportunity uh, to be with you tonight, which I'm thankful for, and I'll be in John chapter 19. And uh, I think you can see it right behind you. It says, Woman, behold your son, and behold your mother. I want you to think about the scandalous scene that we have before us. I want you to, I want you to attempt to picture it. Uh, listen, Jesus is there. He's beaten. He's bloodied. He's hanging upon a cross. Chances are very good that he's at eye level so that people walking by could look directly in his eyes. And they could cuss him out. They could spit upon him if they wanted to. And they could mock him. And they could look right at him. And yet, that's not the only set of eyes that would have been looking into his eyes. We would see his mother there, looking deeply into her son's eyes. And there's no doubt that memories started to flood her mind. And I wonder what she would have thought. We don't know. The Scriptures do not say. But I'm sure that she would have thought back to the moment she had given birth to her beautiful baby boy. I'm sure she thought back to some tender moments where she cared for her son I trust that she thought of some moments like maybe his first steps. Have you ever thought about Jesus stumbling and fumbling and eventually taking his first steps, sure-footed? Maybe she thought about a time when he lost a front tooth and smiled real big. But I'm sure this is not the picture that she wanted to see. I'm sure that, that the Spirit brought back to her an even further thought, one where they presented Christ, the baby Jesus, the infant Jesus to Simeon. And he was speaking of the salvation that was to come. And he said these words to, her, to Mary. He said, and a sword will pierce through your soul, Mary. I have no doubt that those words came back to her as she gazed upon her son. And I'm sure that that message became all too clear as she looked upon her son 
And I'm sure that her eyes were welled up with tears and that she was weeping. I have no doubt that she felt that sword go deep into her soul. And then Jesus looks at his mother and he says, woman, behold your son, speaking of his friend, John, the disciple in whom he loved. And he looks at his best friend and he says, behold your mother, John, behold your mother. And as, as Jesus looked from the cross, he saw his loving and godly mother, and he was worried for his mother. And Jesus, listen, she had other children. It's pretty sure that she would have been a widow at this point. But she had other children. But, but Jesus wanted to make sure she was deeply cared for. And so he looks at the one he knows, I can trust this man, and he appoints him. What an honor to care for Christ's mother. And John, to look after his mom and to care for her like a son in his place. I mean, picture this. Picture it. Jesus beaten and bloodied is now tenderly caring for his mother. Think about the absolute selflessness of Christ. Listen, tonight we're going to hear words from from the Lord, right? From the Scripture that he spoke to murderers, to a thief. But right now he's, he's speaking to his mother. What an audacious love that Christ has for his mother. And, and Jesus, listen, through his death is giving his mother life. Think about that. She's a sinner in need of salvation, just like you and I. And he's loving her to the end. But notice that Jesus is not just caring for her soul. He's caring for her physical and emotional needs as well. Have you ever thought? So many times I think we, we can forget. Yes, Jesus has paid for our sins. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Christ has done everything to reconcile a sinner to the Father. That no one gets to, to the Father but through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father but through Him. But He cares for you intimately in every way. And we see that demonstrated here. What? Listen. He does the same for you and me. And how does He do it? He does it through the church in so many ways. It's John, listen, this is, this is going to be your mother. Mom, this is it's going to be your son. What a picture of the church. The church of God which Jesus purchases with His blood. If you're here and you're born again and you're new in Christ, it's only because of the blood of Christ. And you've been adopted into a family. Blood-dipped child of God. He loves you. In every way. In every way from start to finish. He loves you. He cares for you. And He will tenderly care for you throughout your entire life. He will never leave you. He's with you. It's promised. He gives you His Spirit to care for you, your helper. You know, Romans says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Well, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, okay, somebody better give an amen, right? We, we, right? Think of that. Think of that. I'm smiling now, right? Because this is amazing news. It's amazing news. Listen, this death, this death did not separate Jesus from His mother. And because of the blood shed upon the cross, if you're in Christ, there is nothing, listen to me, nothing that will ever separate you from His beautiful, perfect love for you. Nothing. He's brought you into His family through His blood. And by grace, Christian, listen, that's where you'll remain. That's where you'll remain. So as we continue to listen to the last words tonight, I want you to think about how Christ has loved you from beginning to the end. And He will continue to love you because He's amazing. He's amazing. Luke 23, verse 43. And He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As Scott had us imagine the scene, I want you to continue to picture this scene. We know from the Bible there are three men being crucified. 
Jesus, our Lord, Savior, King, is in the center. He's crucified between two very guilty men. Your Bible might say criminal or thief or robber. These men were men who most likely had committed many crimes against humanity. It's not a stretch of the imagination to imagine these men would rob people and leave them to die. They were being hung on the cross as a crime deterrent. So when people saw them hanging there, they would not do the crimes that they have committed. And in the mercy of God, out of all the places they could have been crucified, and all the times and all the days, they happened to be crucified beside Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that. You see the mercy and the grace of God in these two men's lives. As they were hanging on the cross, they began to have a conversation. I want to drop into that conversation. In Luke 23, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there railed at him and said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In other words, this thief, this criminal, he was mocking Jesus. He said, I heard you were the king of the Jews. I heard you were the Messiah. Get me off of here. But he didn't believe. He didn't trust. He didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. But something happened to the other criminal as he hung on the cross. Some period of time elapsed, and he began to see Jesus differently than, we, than he, when he was first put on the cross. Look at verse 40, or listen. But the other, the other criminal rebuked him. He said, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The second criminal, as he hung there, and as he considered his crimes, and as maybe he had flashes of the worst of the worst things that he had done, he realized he was getting the justice that he deserved. He realized he deserved to be punished. But he also recognized Jesus. He recognized that Jesus, the man in the middle, was an innocent man, a sinless man. And he says, but this man, looking at Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And then he makes a request. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This guilty man, by the Holy Spirit, recognizes Jesus as the guiltless Son of God, the Lamb that would be slain for his sins. And he knows he's a king. He believes he's a king because he says, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Now listen to Jesus' response. And he said to him, the criminal, the man that may have left people to die, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says this to a guilty, condemned criminal. That the moment you die, you will be in God's presence for all eternity, despite what you've done. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.8, But God shows His love for us, and then that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see this clearly in the interaction between the thief and Jesus. Because it should raise some questions. How in the world could a guilty, condemned criminal spend eternity with the living, holy God? Why would Jesus respond to this request from a filthy, despised, rejected criminal? Well, it's because it's the very reason he came. He came to die for sinners like this criminal, like you and I. And this interaction between the criminal and Jesus is a crystal clear picture of how all of us must approach God the Father. We must come believing that Jesus is fully God and man and suffered in our place 
taking the wrath that we deserve. And when that happens, we get clothed and covered with his righteousness. This picture that we're considering, it shows that salvation is an absolutely free gift that we receive by faith alone. And here's the thing. You and I, we come to God on the exact same terms as this criminal. By faith alone, in Christ alone. And when we come on his terms, he welcomes us. He accepts us. He adopts us as his sons and daughters. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, you and I, if we've trusted in Christ, we can have this same assurance that we will be with God for all eternity if we trust in Christ. And these words should ring loud in our minds as well. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Praise God. Wow, there's a lot of people here tonight. And uh, it's so good to be here um, with so many people that love the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And uh, young and old, it's so great to have you here tonight. And I, pr I appreciate the um, ministers asking me to be a part of this, to speak uh, what God has uh, laid upon my heart to speak tonight as far as uh, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46. And it says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's in Matthew. And you also find that very same scripture. It's a cry. Uh, this is a cry, a fulfillment of Psalms chapter 22. And it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning amen and so we find again psalms 22 it's it which is one of the many parallels between that psalm and the specific events of the crucifixion you'll find jesus christ all through scripture folks from genesis to revelation he fulfilled all the prophecies that were mentioned in the old testament he fulfilled all those so you'll find Jesus in every scripture that you read in the word of God. But you know, we, we uh, read this and we hear this verse and it is, it's difficult to understand in what sense Jesus was forsaken by God the Father, you know, our Heavenly Father. It is certain that God approved his work. Of course he did. We know that there's a couple times in scripture where, you know, when Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water they saw the lighting of the dove, which was the Holy Spirit. They heard Father God say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. You know, there was a couple other times, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, where they heard the disciples that were there, heard the voice of God the Father. So he was, he approved Jesus, absolutely. So it's certain that God approved his work and that Jesus was definitely innocent. Amen, folks? Do you agree with me in that? He was innocent. He was the, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And he had, he had done nothing to forfeit the favor of God. And as God's own son, you know, he was holy, you know, harmless, undefiled and obedient. God loved him. You know, Jesus did nothing wrong. And, you know, Anytime you read about the life of Jesus, there was always so many people that were following him. And they wanted to hear what he had to say because they never heard words like this. They never saw things like blinded eyes opened, you know, the lame walked, uh, the dead were raised, wonderful things happened. And so he, he did nothing wrong. So why would he say, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, we find that, you know, that though people may have such crushing experiences that they feel God has forsaken them. How many has ever felt like that before? We probably all have from one degree to another, right? We go through trials, tribulations, you know. Wouldn't it be great if the Bible said, as soon as you get saved, as soon as you ask Jesus in your heart, there'll be no problems. 
Wouldn't that be great? No problems from here to heaven. Oh, that'd be awesome, right? But you know what? Jesus said, the world is going to hate you because of me. That doesn't mean we give up, right? But we keep following him. Amen? Okay, I got to stay on track here because I only got seven minutes. Amen. <laughs> so, you know, we have crushing experiences. We feel God's forsaking us from time to time. But still, none could experience what Jesus did, folks. For no one has had the close relationship with the Father that Jesus had. Amen. And when he said, you know, when Jesus asked why on the cross, he said, why have you forsaken me? Jesus's why was not so much an attempt to find the deepest reason for his suffering as it was a cry resulting from his ability to comprehend it with his sinless humanity. And so for Jesus as the Son of God, knew that he would become sin for all mankind. Amen. And we can be thankful for that tonight. That's the reason why we're here. Amen. We're able to be here because of the mercy and grace of God that he sent his son that we can have salvation. Amen. Wonderful, awesome news for us to tell the rest of the world. So the prophet Isaiah says this about the Messiah. He said, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. And it also says, and I hope you know this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Amen, folks? He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, guess what? Say it with me. We are healed. Amen. That's not just physical healing, but that's healing on the inside. He's the mender of a broken heart. You know, we have a broken spirit. He can, he can heal that. He can heal our minds. He can heal us, body, soul, and spirit. Amen. So we find that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us that he was made a sin offering and he died in our place on our account that he might bring us near to who? To God, our Father, our Creator. We've been created in his image and he wants to have relationship with us. You have relationship with God? But if you don't, you need to try it because the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen? Has God been good to you? Praise the Lord. Amen. That's not everybody. Has God been good to you? All right, that's a little bit better. We'll let you go. Amen. <laughs> so it was this, no doubt, that intensified his sufferings and part of why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he was on the cross that day. And it was the manifestation of God's hatred of sin in some unexplained way, folks, that Jesus experienced in that terrible hour when he was on the cross. So the suffering he endured was due to us. And it, and it is that suffering by which, you know what? We can be saved from eternal death. There is nothing greater than that for us to, to hold on to. Amen? to receive into our lives. This is one of the most, uh, you know, we sing around Christmas time. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Guess what? For me, this is the most wonderful time of the year that as Christians, we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And so, I know it's probably time for me to be done here, but let me just say a couple more things here. You know, as pastors, we have to have a couple closings, but We'll keep it short, amen. But in those, you know, in those awful moments as we think about the cross and, and the Bible says you couldn't even recognize him as a man up on that cross. They beat him and they, he was so bloodied and bruised. He did all that for us. But in those awful moments as evil men were allowed to do whatever they wanted to Jesus, our Lord, uh, the Lord expressed his feelings of abandonment and God placed the sins of the world on his son 
You know, not only did he die the most terrible death that there was known to man, you know, a Roman crucifixion, basically you suffocated to death on the cross. But not only did he endure the betrayal, the, you know, Judas's kiss and the betrayal and the, the great tears of, of blood or sweat, you know, the, the sweat from his brow and the tears that fell were blood, you know, in the garden. But then he took on our sin, our sickness, our burdens. Folks, that's amazing. Only God can do that. Only God can do it. So God placed the sins of the world on his son, and, and Jesus, for a time, felt the desolation of being unconscious of his Father's presence because of you and I's sin. And it was at this time that God made him, the Bible says, and I'll close with this verse. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says that God made him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. With seven minutes, I'm going to say this has been a terrific evening, and I've so enjoyed it. And that's all the small talk you're going to get from me. I thirst. Let me read a little more of that passage from you from John 19, 28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. Now, we don't know where that reference exactly is. Many theologians believe that he was speaking out of Psalm 22. Most believe that he was speaking out of Psalm 69, which says, they also gave gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And I'm always amazed, and I heard Cal talk about it. You realize there are over 300, 300 references to the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament. And I when I find these things, I step in awe and I say, God, you orchestrated this so magnificently, concept upon concept, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, so that we might follow the path. But tonight, and, and I stand in awe of that, but tonight I want to do one thing. You remember Moses, when Moses saw the burning bush, he stepped aside to take a look at it. And tonight I want to just step aside. You understand that the death of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ has been called the great exchange. It was his death so that I might have life. He endured the curse of the law so that I might have the blessing of Abraham. He became sin for me that I might be the righteousness of God. He was forsaken by God that I might be adopted. He endured the wrath of God that I might have the peace of God. And he was separated from the Father that I might be adopted. There was a great exchange. And when he cries out, he cries out, I thirst. I want you to know that this is the great water giver. This is the great thirst quencher. There is an exchange that is taking place. And let me unfold that for you just a minute. John, the fourth chapter. Jesus is sitting at a well with a Samaritan woman. And they're talking about some water. And he says, I, you know, I could use a drink. And so they have a conversation about this. And he says to her, you know, if you knew the gift, if you just knew the gift that was asking you for water, you would ask me for water. The water that you give, men will get thirsty again. But the water that I give, they will never thirst again. They will never thirst again. As a matter of fact, wells and springs of well will well up in with them. And this woman, this woman says, 
oh, I want some of that water. And she drinks of the water that he gives her, and her life is never the same. And we read then in John chapter 7, a short period later, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, the, the Feast of the Booths, both names. And what they are doing there is they are a seven-day celebration uh, in which they are to remember when they were in the wilderness. And part of that celebration, the priests come down to the pool of shalom, the pool of peace, and they gather water out of the, the, the pool, and they take these pots back to the temple as a remembrance that when they were in the wilderness, there was a rock that was struck there. And when that rock was struck by Moses, God said, take and strike the rock. Water came out. And the scripture tells us in Numbers that there was a river of water that came out and they were satisfied, all of them. Can you imagine how much water came out of that rock? It was enough to uh, quench the thirst of, of 600,000 people and all of their beasts, it says. Oh, and then in Corinthians chapter 10, Paul makes reference to that. He says, I want to tell you something. He said, they all drank of that same, that same spiritual food, talking about manna. And he said, they all drank from that same spiritual rock. And that rock was Christ, the water giver, the thirst quencher. And here we see him on the, on the cross, exchanging exchanging his refreshing father where he could drink freely so that we did not have to be thirsty. In, in, in John, when John is telling about this in the same chapter, chapter 19, John says, and the two soldiers came and they broke the legs of the criminals. And they came to Jesus and they found that he was dead. And then the scripture says, and one of the soldiers took his staff and struck the rock. Now it doesn't say that. It says he, but you get the image. You get Moses striking the rock. And here, the soldier Stabs our Savior. And John writes, Do you know what I saw? I saw blood and water come out of him. I saw blood and water. And then he goes on. He said, I'm telling you the truth. There was water that came out. Oh, our Savior cried out, I thirst. So that there could be a great exchange, that we do not have to thirst, that we can drink freely and never thirst again. It's amazing. My friends, if, you, if you've never drank from that well of salvation, talk to one of the men who have spoken tonight and say, I want, like that woman from Samaria, I want some of this water. And if you've, been, if you've been saved for years, sometimes along the road, the road gets a little dusty. The road gets a little rocky. The road gets a little hilly. But there's a rock. There's a rock where there's been a great exchange that you can stoop and drink freely. You can be refreshed. Oh, this is the same this is the same promise that Isaiah, in chapter 55, verse 1, he says, Ho! Hey, you! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. 
And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Oh, when our Savior cried out, I am thirsty, certainly he was thirsty. Certainly he was fulfilling Scripture, but he was making a great exchange that you would no longer have to thirst, but that you could drink freely from all that he has to give. Amen? Amen. My assignment is, it is finished. And if you would turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures, though the word is up here, I want you to see something of context with me. So uh, John 19 and verses 28 through 30. And listen very carefully as we read this. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is from this word that we get the title of a theological concept that we've called the finished work of Christ. Depending where you see it, uh, in the context of the writing that uses even that term, the finished work, one might be speaking about the idea that everything that was necessary for salvation had been achieved by the Lord Jesus Christ at this point, that everything that was justly necessary for us to have and experience our salvation had taken place now. I'm going to take issue with that because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 and 18, we see that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. It says, you're still in your sins. And then those who have trusted in Christ, believing that Christ was raised from the dead, if he's not raised from the dead, which he is, they've perished. So not everything that was necessary for our salvation had been accomplished at this point. But sometimes you hear that term, the finished work used, just about, and I would say this is more accurate, one of those things that was necessary for our salvation, that which was the just basis upon which we could be forgiven, and that is the payment of our sins, that his death was a substitutionary sacrifice, that his death was a full payment of the sin debt of death in our stead on our behalf. And that's more accurate because that is indeed what the Lord Jesus Christ did. However, as time honored and well received, as that understanding of John 19.30 is, I submit to you that that's not really what this is talking about. And maybe when I get done, you'll say with the men of Athens to me, you bring some strange things to our ears. That's okay. That means you're the Athenian idolaters, and I'm Paul in that situation. What does this mean if it doesn't mean that? And let's ask this question. Why have we taken it that way, and why is it possible that we can take it that way? Well, I believe it's because of inconsistent translation. I've read you this context because, did you see it? Three times this word 
it is finished, appeared in those three verses. Three times in three verses and translated three different ways. Clumped right together there. I would think, I would think this is one of my pet peeves. Why don't you translate that word the same way every time? But especially when we find them so closely together and its meaning hinging on what has come before. Look at it again with me. Uh, verses 28 through 30. And I don't know what uh, conventional translation that you may have in front of you. I'm going to be using the New King James Version. I have no problem because I have some problems with it. But, I mean, it's, it's a good translation in my opinion. Uh, but note the three different ways that this same word, teleo, which gets translated, it is finished, is translated. Verse 28, after this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished. That's the same word as it is finished. Accomplished. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Same word. Said, I thirst. Then we see in verse 29 that they respond to that statement, I thirst, with giving him this sour wine on hyssop. And then in verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. What if we translated that the same way every time? What, let's use, uh, they translate accomplished, fulfilled, and finished. Let's translate it accomplished. Knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be accomplished, he says, I thirst, and then he says, it is accomplished. What if we translated it the other way that my NKJV here translates it, uh, fulfilled? Seeing that all things had now been fulfilled, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, it is fulfilled. Therefore, I submit to you this that it's not a statement of the efficacy of his death and of the accomplishment of what that death, what that transaction was given by God to perform. But rather, it is what Bob started off speaking with, who just preceded me, uh, that all of these prophecies relative to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ were now fulfilled. You see it? I know it's different. But knowing that all things had now been accomplished, that is everything except this one last prophecy about his death, he then said to make sure that that last prophecy that needed fulfilled, would be fulfilled, I thirst. And they jump into action to, unbeknownst to them, fulfill that last prophecy, which I think is Psalm 69, in my opinion. And ha do you see the connection in this uh, 30th verse? So when Jesus had received the sour wine, that is when that last prophecy surrounding his crucifixion, was fulfilled, he said, it is finished, or it is fulfilled, it is accomplished. And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. I think what we take away from this is sort of like what Paul was talking about when he was on the boat that was about to be shipwrecked. And he said, I believe God that it shall be exactly as it was told to me. We have massive prophetic proof for us to believe the word of God so that those things that are still yet to be fulfilled, we can say with great confidence, with assurance, with certainty, with positivity, I believe God 
that it will be exactly as it was told me. The one having ears to be hearing, let him be hearing. This evening, I'm most honored and privileged to conclude this service with a portion out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 46. It says, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Can you think about that verse a moment with me? The very God, the very one who breathed into man the breath of life, is breathing his last breath. Having finished the work that God called him to do. That was the mission of his life. And as I look at these verses, and this verse alone has some unique things that Jesus does. And Jesus always does incredible things. He takes broken, miserable, wretched people, and he offers them eternal life. And if they believe in faith and receive him, he'll transform that life into something beautiful if we will submit to his plan and his will. If we obey his word and apply it to our life, there is blessing in an abundant life that satisfies the thirst of your soul. And you can see Jesus doing a couple spectacular things in this one verse. One of the things I want to draw your attention to is that he cried out with a loud voice. Let me submit to you that if you're suffocating to death, you're not crying out with a loud voice unless you're God. You are gasping for breath. You are barely holding on to what's left in your body after the day that he had been through. And you know what the, another incredible thing I see there is that he had the power to lay down his life. You can see that cross-reference in John where no man took his life, he laid it down. There's not a person in this room can say, well, I'm done living, I'm just going to die right now. We don't have that power. He has that power because he is the author of life, he is the sustainer of life, and he is the taker of life. He is God. And we have an option to, we can either adhere to that and we can accept it, or we can go about our own business and do our own thing and not be surprised at the end of the journey. As I see the greatest love story demonstrated to us, actually this phrase comes from Psalm chapter 31, which was a bedtime prayer often for the people in early days, in the days of David. They would pray this as they lay down to bed at night to finish their day. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. That's a beautiful prayer, and I think I might start praying that. That's a great place to be. As I was given this subject several weeks ago, I thought there's no place like the Father's hands. That's the best place that you can be. There's no place that you would want your soul to be anywhere else or your spirit other than in his hands. So as I see this verse unfolded in front of me, it brings us to a couple subjects. You cannot think of Good Friday without thinking of the subject of death. And having been a minister or a pastor in some capacity for 30 years, I've seen a lot of that. And I want to submit to you, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, and you have committed your spirit into his hands, there is a big difference when you're at knocking on death's door. And when you have the assurance and you have the hope of eternal life that is given at you, to you at that moment of salvation, you can leave this life with confidence. You can leave knowing that you are going to be with the Father. You are not going to die, so says John. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. So there you have the options. You have the, as I look at this phrase, and I'll say it to you rather quickly, the first thing I meant to see here is the Father. He said, Father. There was not a stronger father-son relationship ever in this whole existence of this world between Jesus and the Heavenly Father. And I want to tell you, that same Heavenly Father is available for you and me. And He cares about everything about you. He has a plan and a purpose for you. And as I alluded to that this being a prayer, Jesus was a man of prayer. You cannot see the Scriptures and read the New Testament without noticing that. That He spent a lot of time and many hours in genuine communication with the Father. A sincere, heartfelt man of prayer. Not only was he a man of prayer that, you know, as he alludes to him as his father, he's seen him as a fortress, into thy hands. And I alluded to that in John chapter 10. And, and there's no better place to be. What is, in, what is it like to be in the Father's hands? Well, I mentioned three things. There's a place of protection. No one can take you out of the Father's hand. He uses the word snatch. 
And that would mean what oh, the, the devil would try to do. He would love to discourage you and make you think that he could run your life, but he's not in charge if you are a son of God. If you are a son of God, God the Father is in charge of your life. And he is going to take care of you throughout your journey. And that is just how that is. There is protection. And, you know, no one is able to snatch you out of his hand. There is peace, the peace of God that passes all understanding. The third thing, there is pleasure. Psalm 1611, in thy presence is fullness of joy. And you can have pleasure in the Father's hands. As I conclude the verse, it says, I commit my spirit. He finished. Having said this, he breathed his last. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of submission. And he was a man who was faithful. Jesus was faithful to the will of God. You follow his ministry, that was his heart's cry. To do the Father's will. He submitted to the Father's will. Even as he agonized in the garden, he says, If it be possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. If not, nevertheless, at thy will, I will do it. And he did that for you and me. As I conclude this, I want to conclude with the question, Why was all these things recorded? We have the gospel accounts and all different you know, ways that they worded that. But why was it done? John 20, 31 says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So it is imperative that we commend or we entrust ourselves into the loving hands of the Father. If you, if you listen tonight, you heard the phrase, the gift of God, a couple times. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6, 23. In this auditorium, there are two basic needs. One would be to receive this gift of God. If you're here tonight and you have never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've never asked him to forgive your sins, that's your greatest need. If you leave life without doing that, you're not going to be happy where you end up. You're not going to the presence of God, John 14, 6. And the scriptures are full that you do not go to heaven without making your reservation through Jesus Christ. He is the one who has that power. You have that, either that need or you have the need to yield your body, soul, and spirit to the will of God. Every one of us. You say, how often do you got to yield your spirit to God? Oh, about every day. And every day I got to tell my will, you know, today I need to follow your will, Lord. Please show me what that is. And, you know, a good prayer that I've started praying, and I'm not telling you to pray it because it changes the whole dynamics of your day, is, Lord, I, I give you this day, orchestrate it the way you, you want it to be. You might be surprised might happen when you commit your day to him. But as you look at your life, have you ever received Christ as your Lord and Savior? You say, well, what's that mean? Well, you, you remember what that one thief said. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. But what he was saying was, Lord Jesus, I believe who you are. You are who you said you were. And what you need to do is ask Christ to forgive your sin and to come into your life and receive his gift of eternal life. Those of us who are believers, we need to submit our wills to him on a daily basis. I'm going to have a word of prayer. And, and when I have this prayer, I'm going to tell you what I did when I was 17 years old in what is now Hilltop Baptist Church. In the basement of that church, I can take you to the very place, the very seat that I sat in, where I knowingly, in my mind, said, Lord Jesus, forgive my sins and be my Savior. I was 17 years old, having grown up in church from when my mother was carrying me. I never missed a service. Going to church doesn't put you in heaven. Being put in heaven is through receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That thief on the cross didn't go to church. He didn't give a nickel. He didn't pay a nice word to anybody. He received Christ, and that is what your call is to do. And if you haven't done that, you can pray that prayer in your heart. You say, that don't make a whole lot of sense to me. Well, it doesn't have to. It is the gift of God. He paid the price, and he offers it for you. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we heard the greatest story ever told, as we know, that's the greatest demonstration of love. Greater love has no one than this, than they lay down their life for their friends. And Lord God, you loved us, and that way we're yet sinners. You died for us. And I believe that there'll be some folk in this auditorium that have never made the profession where they've asked you to forgive their sin and be your Savior. And Holy Spirit, if you tug on hearts, if there be any that needs to, pray with me. May they take this opportunity and do that at this point.
If that be you, you can pray in your heart a prayer like this, Lord Jesus, forgive my sin and be my Savior. I believe you died on the cross for me. I receive your gift of eternal life. Thank you for saving me. And Lord God, as we continue this service, I don't have to know who prayed that prayer. That's your job. And you promised that you would be their father, and you promised that you would help them through their journey. Help them to have the courage to tell someone, to look for help, to look in your word, and to enjoy this abundant life and the water of life that quenches all thirst. Thank you, Father, for you're the greatest gift ever given to humanity. And because you live, we too shall forever live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.